In part one of this episode of Six Queens, Callie and I will be discussing some topics that may be uncomfortable for our listeners, including a discussion about sexual assault. If this is something you'd like to avoid, you can skip ahead to the second half of the episode. I've put all the time codes you need in the episode's description, which should appear wherever you're listening to us. Just scrub ahead whenever you feel you need to. I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. We were a little bit worried when we first decided that we needed to do this episode because it can be a little heavy. We're going to be talking about Katherine Howard's past, like her life before she came to court. Only one episode because there's so little actually known about it. But unfortunately, what we know the most about is these childhood flirtation liaisons relationships that she had that were eventually held against her when her relationship with the king fell out. So a lot of the episode is going to be focused on that. And unfortunately, when we have those conversations, we do need to talk about sensitive topics. We want to make sure that we're doing this in a respectful way. But at the same time, we are historians. So we have to kind of break down like, what are what are we sensitive to in our society versus what was going on in the 1530s that was completely different. And a lot of other historians have done this. So we're going to invoke their arguments too, but just a warning that this is going to be a heavy one and we're going to be having some heavy conversations about it. Um, and that's, you know, I know we're, we're going to put a disclaimer at the beginning of this, but we are going to try to keep that conversation limited to the first half of the episode. So if, you know, if you're feeling uncomfortable, you can always skip ahead or whatever, but just to know that it's something that we consider, but it's a, it's a conversation that we have to have. We knew we were going to have to have it going into this series. I think a lot of what we're going to be discussing today has also um, helped form the reputation of what we know of Catherine Howard. If you just Google search Catherine Howard, a lot of the first few articles um, that will come up or even on the suggested Google searches was how many partners did she have? Was she, I was reading an article um, and these are two words that pop up quite often, but um, was she a vixen or a victim? I think a, a lot of what we do know has done a lot of reputational damage to her. So it's about putting her back in the centre of this and not just leaving the whole of what happened in the hands of the quote-unquote adults around her. But there's also been some really interesting research, uh, especially the Gareth Russell book that's just come out on um, Catherine Howard or not long been out on Catherine Howard, where he tries to give her a voice back. And I think that's so interesting. I think the most important thing that we can do in presenting all of this evidence and all of these historiographical arguments is give her that agency back, like you said, to show that things weren't just happening to her. Um, she's not, you know, being put on one side of the spectrum or the other. She's not a complete victim, but she's also not a complete, like, flirtatious, you know, like she's not batting her eyelashes at every single man, you know, 
this episode, we're going to show that she had a life and she had her own experiences and she was aware of them. It wasn't just her being pulled in several different directions. And it's not to say that she wasn't a victim. That's not what we're saying at all. It's just that things are always a bit more complex. And what can we actually tell about her? What do we know? And what's been overblown by years and years of often reductive storytelling. And even more frustratingly, the stuff that we're going to be covering on the episode today, the majority of it, like the main source for it, is all of the inquests that was happening once Catherine had been arrested on suspicion of treason and adultery. So she was having to relive her past and people were brought in to give interviews about what had happened in her teenage years. So it is a bit hard because you're always trying to figure out, well, is this person saying something under duress or because they feel like they have to? Is it real? Is this really what happened? But unfortunately, it's like the only source that we have. So we kind of have to go with it and try to figure out what exactly was going on. So to start out, I think let's revisit some of the biographical information that we do know about her and kind of set the stage for all of the scandal that's going to happen. So as we said in an earlier episode, we don't know exactly when Catherine was born, but it was sometime in like the early to mid 1520s uh, because her mother actually dies in 1528. And as we said then too, Catherine was the kind of person who in this big family, I think was at risk of being kind of lost in it because not only was she one of 10 children of her mother, but her father, Edmund Howard, who had this connection to the Dukes of Norfolk, was one of, I think, seven sons and was clearly not one of the favored sons. There's a lot of um, sort of funny anecdotes of him like not hitting it off with um, with Henry, with King Henry. Like they jousted against each other at the tourney in 1511 that Henry threw when um, when Catherine of Aragon had her son. And um, Edmund Howard was uh, on the list with Henry, but like wouldn't let him win. So Catherine was kind of fated from the beginning to be like the child of somebody who actually kind of was noble, but had to have a job. I mean, they weren't living in poverty necessarily, like they were comfortable, but it wasn't as grand. Yeah, they um in terms of like you would just say, like in terms of poverty levels, it wasn't like hand to mouth, but uh, they definitely were one to have. Uh, Edmund was definitely one to have squandered his position and his wealth. But I think it's funny that he doesn't mind. He's one of those people who doesn't mind using his connections where he can, to the point where Edmund is so in debt and so badly needs money that he actually appeals to Anne Boleyn in the early 1530s. Um, at this point, she's well-established as Henry's consort, um, maybe not really, but in name anyway. And she gets him a job in Calais, funnily enough for the guy who can barely manage his own wealth, um, as a comptroller. You have to laugh at the irony of that, I think. <laughs> I know it will be perfect for you, Uncle Edmund. <laughs> this is where uh, Catherine's sort of life starts to take on the course that we recognize. So Edmund is off in Calais, handling money really well, I'm sure. And Catherine's mother has died at this point. So Edmund's children are all kind of being broken up and sent into different households. This is super common. Like, remember when we talked about Anne Boleyn being sent to the court of Margaret of Austria to do her education? It was super common for noble children to be fostered 
in other noble houses. It was a way of kind of strengthening the connections between them and getting Catherine out of the house so that she can be seen and eventually married off. So she and one of her brothers, Henry, are actually sent to live with her step-grandmother, the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, at her house in Sussex. The household of the Dowager Countess was unusually quite large. You know, she'd ended up taking in, um, as you just said, um, not only Catherine Howard, but a few of her siblings as well. And, you know, potentially had some cousins and things there. Um, They were all, um, the girls at least, were all given a dormitory to to sleep in. Well, it's kind of like... um... Are in our, our modern equivalent of being sent to like summer camp or boarding school, um, where it's about the social yeah. camaraderie of like living in a dorm and having lots of girlfriends and that kind of thing. Which I think I quite like for Catherine because for everything that I think we know about her, you know, even from a young age, I think she's potentially very very sociable. Yeah, so it was it was just about just it was just as much about the social interaction and getting out and being seen by the right people as it was actually learning and perhaps unlike a lot of our queens who we've talked about like think back to the Anne Boleyn episode again where she was given this incredibly round education by Margaret of Austria Catherine was learning how to be a courtier and how to be a noble woman so her education at her grandmother's house was much more focused on like singing and dancing and walking correctly and like how to have man good manners and all of all of that kind of stuff add into that too that um catherine's step-grandmother the dowager duchess of norfolk was um how do you say like a, a busybody you know like she was a like the prime example of a courtier like i feel like jane austen would have loved her because she was like very witty and very sociable, very charming. She was well known for her skills as a hostess. She loved her wealth. Like she spent a ton of money on things. Her house was gorgeous and impeccably decorated. And she put a lot of weight on status that way. So she was this person who was like hardwired for court. In fact, a lot of the time that Catherine was living in her household, her grandmother wasn't even there because she was at court living it up the way that the Dowager Countess you said, like, ran her household and who she was, the education that Catherine Howard then receives makes so much more sense. This kind of sets up everything else, though, that the fact that her grandmother was away for a lot of the time, or at least um, there were so many people in her household that she couldn't necessarily pay close attention to everyone. And it seems like Catherine was one of the higher status pupils, um, for lack of a better term, in the household because she was the Duchess's, um, like, step-granddaughter. Like, she was part of the family. So I think she had a little bit more importance in terms of all of the other girls that were around her. But still, there were so many of them that it was hard to really keep a close eye on all of them. So it allows for the perfect kind of environment for these girls to have fun without much worry for consequence in more ways than one you know we're not just talking about like flirting and like sexual fun and everything but like being girls you know like being loud and being annoying like we all were when we were like 13 year old (laughs) girls like like you said like the the world in which she was sort of living in and occupying it was very much akin to boarding school finishing school a university set up like when you, when you first go and you're living together and it's all new and it's fun and exciting and you don't have parental supervision i'm not going to put my foot in here 
in this because I know certain people listen to this. So <laughs> um, you, you are going to take advantage of it. The place where it starts to get awkward, and we use this word on the show a lot, but I'm going to say it again, icky. The majority of the young men that these girls are exposed to are their tutors or people who work within the dowager's household, so like her staff. And that's where the flirtations for somebody like Catherine, who is, you know, a noble woman, start to get a little complicated because it really can't go beyond flirtation if we're going to stick to a sense of propriety. But we know that it very quickly does go beyond that point because it seems to be what's happening around her. Like she's just kind of going with the flow of what all these other teenage girls around her are doing. Here's where we need to start to be careful. We encounter her first relationship with her music teacher, Henry Maddox, who is five years older than her. Give or take a few years because, again, information is sketchy. But from what we know, he's about five years older than her. And they become very, very close very, very quickly. And they start seeing each other, you know, outside of the confines of lessons. And it, but it actually gets to something that, by the standards of the time, it's not anything that Catherine should be engaging in. And she actually admits to it in the inquest later. But she maintains that, quote, at the flattering and fair persuasions of Mannix, being but a young girl, I suffered him at sundry times to handle and touch the secret parts of my body, which neither became me with honesty to permit, nor him to require. So in layman's terms, they, you know, they fooled around a little bit, but it didn't get farther than that. And this is where we start to get into the gray area of like, how consensual was this really? Looking at the deposition where Catherine says, like, I suffered him um, you know, like she implies that maybe she didn't want to be going all of the way here. I think that's where the, the modern historians have started to think this there's something off here. Like we start to talk about the reality that this could have been what we would define as sexual assault. And while I don't discount that, I do think that it has been... I don't even want to say overblown, but you know what I mean? Like, even like I've seen some people talk about how Catherine was raped when, when you look at it, it's, it seems to just been a flirtation gone too far. And Gareth Russell does a really good job in his book of talking about how there were all sorts of reasons why this was an inappropriate relationship, but there's no reason why we need to suddenly strip Catherine of her agency in how she was reacting to it. He does a really good job, I think, of choosing his words very, very carefully when he's he's talking about this in his book. And he says, however, if not horrible, their relationship was nonetheless inappropriate on several levels. And I think that is the key difference when we're kind of dealing with the historiography here. And like we said at the beginning, too, a huge part of this is restoring Catherine's agency in it and admitting to ourselves that she isn't always going to be playing a passive role in this whole saga. And it's not to say that she certainly wasn't a victim of anything by any means, but it seems like she did have some awareness of what was going on and she drew lines of what was appropriate and inappropriate. And case in point, as Gareth Russell points out in his book, is that as soon as it starts to get to this uncomfortable place with Mannix and she kind of realizes what's going on, 
she ends it. She stops showing him any kind of attention. But also the the balances of power in terms of a, a, a social power structure comes into play. And the servant takes Manix aside and says, listen, you're playing with fire here. This can never go anywhere. Just be very, very careful about what you do next. And then he turns around and says, well, I am not going to repeat exactly what he says. He says... He I says can... some very, very crass things. Um, Thank you. That is the word. It is crass. Um, and then this gets back to Catherine, and she's just like, pardon me? You said what now? And almost, like, like you said, like she calls it off, but puts him back in his place. So I think it's important when we discuss this narrative of sexual assault around Catherine to remind people that she did have a voice in this, and she used it. I like the idea that we can see her in this gray area as somebody who did have to suffer a potential sexual assault, but also could have been somebody to have the agency to stop it, which is why I think it's important that we isolate these two early relationships of Catherine's. But the one with Mannix is clearly like a flirtation that got way too out of hand and it was never meant to be anything else. Whereas this next one that followed from Catherine's relationship with Mannix did go far and to the point where I think Catherine was in love and kind of lost herself in that. Because once she gets a little bit older in her grandmother's household, she meets her grandmother's secretary, Frances Darum, who is, again, probably a few years older than her, but not by much. He's a, he's a young man. Um, more of her peer in that sense, I think, than probably Mannix is. Their relationship seems to be one of genuine affection. Like, they are flirtatious, and there's that game that we've been talking about of flirting and, like, passing notes and everything. But it it quickly develops into something that's very different than what we saw with Mannix. It's when Catherine talks about it later in all of the, the inquest. She doesn't talk about it with regret necessarily. I mean, regret that it happened, obviously, and you all found out about it, but um, regret in the sense that she might have been, you know, touched inappropriately or assaulted. I think, like you said, there's an, a, 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 at least a fondness or a, an attach, a, a love attachment that they share um, for one another. You know, they go as far as calling each other husband and wife. You know, they're not actually married, but they are looking to to get married and to kind of start a life together. We, we kind of think of it as like your, your, your teenage love is, is your first one, but not your final one. Whereas, you know, for someone like Catherine, she's 15 or so probably at this point, maybe, maybe 16. She's of perfect age to get married. Like your first love is, is a huge candidate for your only love, you know? So I think she, she does have this great affection for, Francis and like you said they're calling each other husband and wife they're giving each other very intimate gifts like she gets him um shirt like material for his shirts and he makes her like little tokens that she can wear and then it escalates to the point where they did indeed consummate their relationship like Catherine even admits to this later it's very awkward to talk about because then you have to think about the fact that she's sleeping in this dormitory, basically, and they're sneaking Francis in, and that's where everything's happening. So I spare a thought for all of those those roommates. By 16th century standards, he's not unattractive, and, you know, he's not unconnected. So 
kind of thinking ahead he makes he makes a good match and you know he is allowed into like you said he's allowed into the, the girls dormitories to visit Catherine and he brings you know like little picnics that they can have and he's courting her but like you said it ends up going further than just courting and the potential to then marry later down the line with Darum, it is like yes i'm in love with her and we're going to get married and this is my wife it's I don't want to say it's wholesome by any means, but it is, you get the sense that there was actually like love and affection involved. Whereas with Mannix, it was literally, it was just about the, the flirtations and the sex. I think what ends up happening with Francis for Catherine is that it becomes apparent that although this wouldn't be a bad match, you know, these two who are clearly have this great affection for each other, he's not of awful social standing not great but not awful and she is you know one of the younger daughters of one of the younger sons of a du an old duke so like it's not completely on unequal grounds like it could be a thing right but i think catherine does figure out that and maybe she doesn't want to have all of this commitment yet i mean a little too late right but like at the same time she starts to i think push him away and this is where her relationship with Darum gets a little icky, is that he gets very possessive of her. Um, he has He's of the mindset that they made all these glorious plans and that were basically a, a marriage contract. Like she apparently, in his eyes, agreed to marry him. And she has to be the one to say, it was fun, but it wasn't as serious as you think. The 16th century world does not work like this. <laughs> You, yeah, you don't just, you, don't tell Henry, but you just don't break up with somebody. <laughs> he doesn't know this. This is something he's like, what, what do you mean? Sorry? We don't just chop people's heads off? But um, you don't just walk away from this. And Catherine's given him the perfect tool to bring about her downfall and her reputational downfall. And that is not to say that this was her fault in any, you know, what he did was right and the behavior that he exhibited is not right at all. But again, by a 16th century standard, she she could now be completely ruined. The, you know, the, the, the modern era of feminism needs to catch up with Catherine much faster because, yeah, she does have enough power and agency and opinion clearly to know when we need to stop this because it's getting too far and I don't want this anymore. But she is young and, and, and naive enough to think that it can also just be swept under the carpet. So by the late 1530s, um, around 1539, I think Catherine's family knew that they had to get her out of that house and away from Francis Darum because the relationship was now fairly well known within the household. Like all the hi um, the higher ups knew about it and were not thrilled with it. And Catherine herself, I think, wanted to get out of it. So how are we going to get her out of it? Uh, we we're not going to necessarily arrange a marriage for her right away, but we need to get her away. And at this point, Catherine's father, Edmund, was also dead. So she had become the responsibility of her extended family. And the best thing I think they could do for her now was to get her some kind of appointment. 
And the best place to go for one of these appointments is court. It's the right choice for her to leave the house. However, do I think it was the right choice for her to go to court? That place where we, we, we talk about it so often here. Courtly love is a big thing. It, it, has, it has a reputation for being outwardly and during the daytime, a strict place of moral virtue and a place for, you know, for politicking. But at night, behind closed doors, just we'll leave that up to your imagination. So yeah, if you if you think that like the the sort of boarding house university setting for Catherine's early years was encouraging of all of this, quote, depravity, um, wait till you get to court. Put her in the lion's den. Let's just see how she gets on. And the timing is excellent, though, because we're going to try to get her into court. Um, her uncle, the current Duke of Norfolk, the one we all know and love from this period, um, is going to try to get her an appointment at court. And one of her other uncles, one of the other Howard boys, is actually part of the diplomatic negotiations that are happening to bring Anne of Cleves, or whoever Henry chooses at this point, but we all know it's Anne of Cleves, over to be the new queen. So he is very well placed to kind of be the informant of we're going to have a new queen soon. They're going to have to start putting together a household for her, start showing some interest. So Catherine has this perfect in where she's chosen to be in the new queen's household as one of her maids of honor. It happens very smoothly this way. And like you said, it's perfect for her. She she gets to go have fun. There are all these new people here. It's exciting. Yeah, it, it's, it just, it kind of works out perfectly that way for her. Less so, though, for Francis Derham. Um, he, he is of the mindset that he and Catherine will be getting married at some point. And uh, so why are you sending her away to court? Why, why is this happening? And she being young, I think, and not knowing how to handle the situation kind of puts it off as long as she can of, oh, well, you know, it's just for now. I'm just, I'm just going to go because I'm being told I have to and, and all, of, all of this stuff, whereas he's thinking in terms of like, well, we'll hurry back because you're my wife. Because like you said, he does become very possessive and he does still view her as his. And it's not wholly unrealistic behavior for the time, we have to reiterate. You know, you've, you've been flirting with this woman you have gone as far as consummating the relationship. You call each other husband and wife. Unless Catherine made wholly clear that she was just kind of playing along with it, then you can see how he came to the conclusion that that was all for real. So it's, a, it's another example of Catherine kind of just not wanting to confront the issue um, that, that being her mistake of, she thinks that she can just kind of move on from things and that's not how life works. But at least with this chapter, she's actually physically leaving. So she does get the new start of being at court and serving the queen, having this place of honor at court. It's very, very new and exciting for her. She was basically being trained for this for most of her adolescence. So now she gets to actually use all these, quote, skills that she's learned. Uh, she later told somebody that all that knew me and kept my company knew how glad and desirous I was to come to the court. Now, this was an awkward period of time at court because we're putting together this new household for Anne of Cleves. She's on her way. She's getting ready to leave. 
she's going on this long journey that we've covered on uh, the podcast. So you, you all know what we're talking about. But her household is at court getting ready. So Catherine has this early exposure to the world of court without her mistress being there. And it's probably around this time estimated by several people like Gareth Russell and David Starkey that Henry first notices Catherine. How far this went, we don't know whether he just noticed her and liked the look of her or they actually did start flirting with each other and Catherine knew that she had his attention. We don't know, but it seems likely that in this kind of awkward period between the queens, that's when Catherine was first noted at court. And she seems to have made a good impression. Um, maybe not as like alluring as her cousin Anne Boleyn had been, but certainly like beautiful and fun. You know, it, like from all accounts, she was very lively and she was somebody that you'd want to hang out with kind of that like infectious happiness. So I can see how eyes would be drawn towards her. As the court ages as well, she's an injection of youth. And like you were saying, Henry doesn't have a wife to anger him and he needs that. He is very much the embodiment of courtly love and romance. Luckily, that's kind of put on a hold for a, a little while, like little highlight that because Anne of Cleves is coming and Henry is shifting to his, as we said, the sort of like grand idea of this romance with, you know, my, the love of my life is on her way now and I have to get ready and woo. Yeah, uh, you can't see, but Callie is just like waving her arms. Um, I forget that this is not a visual thing. Even <laughs> we did it for like a year. So he's getting ready for that. And that seems to be when Catherine too was settling into her new life because she wasn't there to just have fun and dance. She was there to serve the new queen, the maids of honor. We'll talk about this again. Like I, I know a lot of people ask us this kind of stuff, but we're, we are going to do whole episodes devoted to it. But just to give you a, an idea, Catherine's role as a maid of honor within the queen's household. She was on one of the lowest rungs of the ladder. She was somebody who was supposed to help the queen dress, accompany her everywhere she went. And yes, like do things like play games and everything with her, but also manage the, um, the staff, the servants. And so she would have been very busy. She would have had actual work to do attending to Anne of Cleves once Anne of Cleves came but then being in Anne's household would have probably also been one among the first to know when things were starting to maybe unravel. And I always find it quite interesting when I say we would have been aware that someone would have known something. My, I always wondered to what extent that they would have been aware. Um, and I think that's an important question, but she certainly would have noticed something shift between Anne and Henry. Not that there was really much to shift because it didn't get off to a great start, but she would have sensed the air of awkwardness or at the very least, Anne's unease at being at an English court. A lot of the um, the narratives around Catherine Howard start to take off here. Like the one with her seducing Henry really start here with this idea of Henry being very uncomfortable with Anne of Cleves, of really disliking her a lot, clearly not sleeping with her. And so he looks to somebody young and fun and more tempting um, and Catherine sees that opportunity and takes full advantage of it. And let me tell you now that it is very not what happened. We don't really know what happened. Um, the timeline is very shaky in terms of like 
when she was first noticed and when the real attention began. But we know it kind of had nothing to do with her or her family angling her towards Henry. It was very much an accident in terms of Henry must have noticed her at some point, kept noticing her, and then the infatuation just kind of grew and grew and grew. And this is probably best told by Catherine's step-grandmother, who was with her at court occasionally, who later said that the king's highness did cast a fancy to Catherine the first time that ever his grace saw her. I think the opportunity or the time to kind of presents itself where Henry is not really feeling Anne of Cleves. And so he's looking, his eye is wandering and, oh, look, there's this pretty young thing. She looks fun. She looks awesome. It just grows and grows and grows until it kind of gets out of control. But it doesn't seem to be something that Catherine herself or her family ever expected to happen. It was not by design at all. I know that there's usually that narrative that once she gets to court, Thomas Howard plays this to his advantage and he uses her and kind of maneuvers her. You know, he's already had one one niece that was queen. Why not? Let's make it a second. There, There's a very oft-repeated narrative and one that I've kind of subscribed to over the years that has since been debunked the more I read about it and the more I think about it, really. Like you said, um, it 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 makes sense knowing Thomas Howard, the Duke of Norfolk's ambition that he would see this opportunity and be like, oh yeah, go talk to the king. This is great. But that doesn't seem to be what happened just because it went so quickly and it was so unexpected. I think the Howards jumped on it when they figured out it was actually happening and like they took advantage of it once it was in full swing, which makes total sense when you actually sit down and think about it. You're like, oh, of course they wouldn't, like, play their cards before they knew, you know? It sounds so silly now that we, we, we kind of talk about it and we say it out loud because I, I do very much the same thing as you. I subscribe to the idea that, you know, it must have been Thomas Howard. Like, you know, could it have possibly been that that Catherine was very, very pretty? How could it have possibly been a thing that Henry just found her attractive? I think sometimes we like the mess and we like the drama of history, like... Well, I mean, if you look at the track record of the Tudor court, it is never as simple as just, I think you're hot. Well, no, this is true. And I I think... But in this case, it is. It is. And and so our default is to say, well, like, what were the political ambitions behind this? And what was (laughs) Howard's grand plan? Like, I remember reading one time that Howard, the Howard's grand plan, especially the Duke of Norfolk's plan, was we're going to, it's a multi-step complicated plan where we're going to oust Thomas Cromwell by getting Henry to hate Anne of Cleves and eventually annul the marriage. And it's just so silly that somebody sat down and was like, step one, we're going to bank on the fact that Henry is going to not like this foreign bride. Two, we're going to throw my niece at him, who is really hot, and hope that Henry falls in love with her. Three, we're going to get everyone to suddenly want to dissolve this marriage and embarrass this foreign princess on the world stage. And then four, Henry will marry my niece. Like, what? Yeah. When you say it like that, it does sound completely insane. So the fact that this is just as simple as, I think you're attractive... It's also an anti. It's almost an anticlimax. Yeah, 
the person who happened to be there at the right time looking cute while dancing at court happened to be Catherine. It could have been anyone. It was Catherine. But that does seem to be what happened, especially because there's not really much documentation surrounding their early courtship. It's just that he showed interest in her all of a sudden. And then it kind of just kept going and going and going from there. If there was some master grand plan, I kind of feel like we would have a better idea of what was going on, but we don't. So the first real indication that we get that Catherine is being seriously flirted with, not just like smiling at each other during dinner at court, but actually like Henry is actively pursuing her for lack of a better word is that he starts giving her gifts in the spring of 1540. So at this point, Anne of Cleves is the queen um, and Catherine is serving in her household, but Henry is very convinced that this is not going to work out and he is not actively even trying to make it work. So everyone, the eyebrows start to be raised. Henry starts giving her gifts of like money and land. At one point, he sends her a bunch of cloth with which to make very, you know, fine new clothes. So he's serious about her. It's kind of a, you know, there's the oft-repeated story about him sending gifts to Jane Seymour to kind of convince her to return his affections. It's, It's the same thing. And Catherine, I think, starts to figure out that this is more than just the king likes the look of me. The king actually is interested in me. And she starts to ask her family what to do about it. And this is where we see the Howard machine kick in of, yeah, how are we going to deal with this? And the first step is to actually remove her from court at some point for propriety's sake. So they take her back to her family's home at Lambeth so that we don't mess this up again. (laughs) Not for the same reasons, but it kind of follows the pattern of what happened to Anne Boleyn, you know, when she she went back to Heber while Henry was courting her. It's remove her from view and see if he follows. And guess what? (laughs) (laughs) He did. Um, It really wanted to be there, some horrible plot twist. No, we didn't. She's still there. Yeah, it, 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 all actually, it all actually worked out in the end. It's fine. No. <laughs> um, yeah, no, Henry Henry was serious in his interest, and we don't necessarily know what he was courting her for. Like, at this point, he was, yes, trying to actively get out of his marriage to Anne of Cleves, but was he pursuing Catherine to be his mistress? Was he pursuing Catherine because he thought that there was a chance that he could actually marry her? We We, we don't know anything about that. But he was visiting her. And he was making these gifts to her. So a lot of people reported seeing his barge sail down the Thames to Lambeth. And he would like go and have dinner with Catherine and her extended family. And then he would go back to court. So it all looked very nice. You know, like he he, he made it look like he was actively courting and pursuing her. But it's hard to know what his actual intentions were. And here you have to wonder if people are telling her like kind of the traditional Anne Boleyn-esque narrative of like don't promise him too much yet like play the long game and let's see what we can get out of this at some point though once it becomes very clear to everybody that the marriage with Anne of Cleves is going to be annulled that Henry is only interested in Catherine it's not going to be another we're not going to go look for another bride in Europe this is who his eyes are set on to the point where An ambassador actually writes that it is commonly said that the king will marry a lady of great beauty, daughter of Norfolk's deceased brother. 
So this is when Catherine starts getting a lot of that attention and everyone knows who she is. And it's a little infuriating that we don't know more than that, because then, of course, we know the story. We we said it last week of how then they get married and that's that. But that's really all we know. And it's kind of infuriating that after all we know about her previous two relationships, we don't know anything about how she was reacting to Henry's interest other than, whoa, this is weird. What do I do about this? Like, was she like, did she want to be queen even? Or did she recognize that there were a few skeletons in her closet that I really hope they don't find out about this? Or we just, we don't, we don't know. It's interesting though, that there's kind of a, a, a brief final chapter with Francis Derham, because in the same way that amongst the courtiers, it got out that Henry was really interested in Catherine, not just flirt, flirting with her, but actually interested in her. So Francis Derham hears about it. And I think that's when he realizes that he's going to have to go away now. And yes. the possessive personality really comes out here. Like this is the point where he realizes that all of this wasn't for anything and Catherine will not be his. But also now Catherine has to worry about the fact that, as you said, there is somebody perfectly placed to destroy her. And I, I like to think she's smart enough to recognize that. And that's the, the, the tragic truth of this whole story is that whether because something happened to her or she made active mistakes on her own, a little of both, she does kind of set herself up in this. And it's all such an accident that she can't have been planning for it. But now she's having to kind of roll with the punches and figure out what she's going to do about all of this as she's going Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Six Queens. On the next episode, Callie and I will introduce you to the four husbands of Catherine Parr. In the meantime, you can follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we'd love to hear from you. So please leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Long live the Queens.